I think you all know the feeling. I think we all know the feeling. It's like the feeling when you get uh, to Love Field on a Monday morning. You're flying out for a business trip or vacation. You're a little behind schedule and you're hoping that line is short, but it just extends all the way back to that Southwest Airlines counter. It's, you know the feeling. It's like showing up to the DMV, need I say more? You know the feeling. It's like showing up to a doctor's visit, anyone but Mike Kellum, I'm sure, and, and that feeling of sitting in the waiting room and sitting and sitting and waiting. You know the feeling. You rush to get that oil change. You're hoping you can get in and out, but they say it's a two-hour wait. You know the feeling. You think you've met the one, but you're not sure, and you're praying and sorting through it. Or maybe you're wondering if that one's going to come at all. You know the feeling. You found a, a lump, and so you went to the doctor. That doctor sent you to a specialist. And you've been to the specialist, but you're waiting on the results. Some more difficult and some a little easier, but we all know what it is to wait, don't we? And in the season of Christmas, or what many churches throughout the centuries have called Advent, that's what we do every year. We come together in this special season with trees up and with poinsettias and, and manger scenes, nativities, our homes decorated in different ways than normal, and we wait. We learn actually in ritual to wait uh, better. We're all waiting. Some of us are just waiting in more obvious ways. Some of you are waiting on your next job opportunity. Others of you are waiting for a baby. Some of you are waiting for results. And some of you are waiting for the sermon to get finished so you can move on with your day. More of our lives are spent waiting on the thing rather than enjoying the thing once it comes. And once we enjoy the thing when it comes, there's more waiting, isn't there? Because life is almost a waiting game all the time for whatever it might be. It's always something new. And with all the practice we've had, you'd think that we'd get better at it, wouldn't you? But all it takes is about five minutes on 75, and you lose your mind. Because we know how hard it is to wait. And today we're beginning a series called Wait For It. But actually it's meant to be said with a different inflection than that. It's meant to be said something like, wait for it. And that's what we do each Christmas when we walk through these doors is we remind ourselves that it wasn't just waiting on a baby in the first century that the people of God did before, but we're all waiting, aren't we? We're all waiting on, on little things, we're all waiting on big things, but we're all ultimately waiting on another return of Jesus to this world. And so when we gather each December, it's a chance for us to remember what it means to wait and to wait well. And so for the next three weeks, I want to look at three stories from the Old Testament of characters who spent time waiting. And, and, and I want you right now to think about what it might be for you right now. What is it that you're waiting on? What is it that you're in between? What is it that you maybe are waiting on results or who knows what it could be in your life? I want you to think about that and I want you to really plant that in your mind over these next several weeks because I want to speak some words of challenge, some words of comfort, some words of what next steps might look like for us as we all live in a waiting game no matter what it might look like in our lives. 
And what I believe is that Advent is an opportunity for us to work out again our muscles of hope. It's a gymnasium of sorts. It's a chance to go and remind ourselves that God stepped into the world thousands of years ago and He promises to do the same again. Then on Christmas, a few weeks from now, we'll learn what it is to celebrate and receive what's been promised. Sound good? Y'all ready for this? Wait for it? Let's pray together. Father, uh, this morning we're all in waiting. Different forms it takes. Some exciting waiting and some, oh, it seems so difficult. Even this news week that's been received. God, I pray you would somehow transform words that were written on a Starbucks week and a half ago. And that your spirit would infuse these words to speak gently where they need to be spoken gently. Be spoken with hope where they need to be received with hope. Would you allow uh, the gift of preaching to somehow be, be used so that Christ might be formed in our hearts and we might wait well. And all God's people said, Amen. I want to begin this this Christmas series in a place you'd expect any Christmas series to begin, in the book of Genesis. Genesis. If you have your Bibles, open with me, if you would, to Genesis 37. It's the story of Joseph, not the father of Jesus. That's a later story that we may get to at some point in the series. But this is the story of Joseph, the Old Testament patriarch of sorts. A couple of details about Joseph, if you're newer to his story. Joseph's the 11th of 12 children. And the 12th isn't born yet at this point. Benjamin comes a little later. But, but he's born, and, and he's got a mom and a dad. Uh, his dad is a guy named Jacob, uh, also known as Israel. You've got uh, Isaac, who's his grandfather, and then his great-grandfather is, is Abraham. And you'd think, this is the beginning of Scripture, Genesis. Here's a family, pretty good patriarch, right? Abraham, this must be a really functional family. And what we find out is... It's nothing of the sort. It's a mess. And you see it all through the generational lines, what kind of occurs in their story. Joseph is no different. It's a messed up family. So these ten brothers, they actually hate him. Which is not a good place to be as a brother. So let's pick up in Genesis 37 to find out some of the reason for that hatred that he experiences. Genesis 37, beginning in verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. It's not quite technicolored, but ornate. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So his dad loves him more than the rest of the other brothers. Part of that's uh, who his, his mother is. He loves her a little more than the others, perhaps. There's four women in this family that serve his moms over these kids. It's a real mess. It's all kinds of reasons, but he gives them this code, and, and there's another reason his brothers don't like him. It's because he's been having these dreams. Jacob is a bit of a dreamer. And as we get to hear more about that story, we begin to hear about the dreams that he has. Joseph has two dreams, one about sheaves and the other about stars, and basically both of them amount to this. His brothers are all bowing down to him. Now, a little bit of advice for those of you out there this morning. If you're a parent, first of all, favoritism toward one of your kids is not going to turn out well in the end. Something's going to go wrong. So do your best to work to love all your kids as hard as that may be sometimes. I know we, this is church, but we can speak those words. 
How do we learn to love all of our kids? That's a challenge. But another story is for those who are, who are siblings, right? You have siblings. If you ever have a dream like this, don't tell your brothers or sisters about it. It's just a mistake. And then there's, you know, if any of us, all of us can probably serve from this advice. You don't have to say everything that you know. Some things can be kept in. I need to probably learn that advice as well. So what do the brothers do? Jacob tells Joseph to go on and, and check on his brothers who are out in the fields. And listen to what happens when Joseph goes to see his brothers. This is chapter 37, verse 18 and following. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of those cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Now you know why I say dysfunctional family. But this thoughtful brother of his, Reuben, has another thought. Guys, we don't need to kill him. Let's just throw him in a hole and maybe he'll die on his own with no blood on our hands, right? And then he's got another entrepreneurial brother, you know. I mean, Judah gets this idea. He says, well... But if we kill him, we won't get anything in return for him. So why don't, we, uh, why don't we sell him? And if we sell him, we can at least get something back. And then we'll pretend like he died. And so that's what they do. They sell him to a wandering group of Ishmaelites. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Abraham, great-grandfather, great-grandfather has two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. So that's the whole story. You see the dysfunction of the families playing itself out in the story of Joseph. He gets sold to his long-lost ancestors who went the other way, and then he goes to Egypt, and he gets sold into slavery there. And this would be a, considered a low moment in Joseph's story. But it's a story full of ups and downs. He begins as the favorite son of his father Jacob, or Israel. But then he gets sold into slavery to some long-lost ancestors, the Ishmaelites. But he isn't sold into just any family. He's sold into a specific family, a family uh, with a guy named Potiphar in it. And Potiphar is significant in Egypt. You have Pharaoh who's at the top, but Potiphar is the captain of the guard. And so through this fortune of this family who buys him, he ends up rising up within that family, and he becomes kind of the head of the servants in that household. But then it goes wrong again. Because Potiphar's wife takes an interest in Joseph, and one time when Potiphar's gone, Joseph uh, ends up in the house, and Potiphar's wife tries to sleep with him. And Joseph runs from the situation, the, the, the cloak falls off as he's running out the door to try to be an honorable person, not take anything wrong he shouldn't from, you know, his, his master's wife. And instead, she turns it on him and makes it look like he had actually tried to take advantage of her. And so you can imagine what Potiphar's thinking. It's not good to offend the captain of the guard of all of Egypt. So Joseph gets thrown into prison. You see the ups and downs continue in his life, right? He gets thrown into prison misfortune again and it's an unjust situation i told you this is an up and down story you've got favorite child you've got slavery you've got rising up in potiphar's house now back in prison but even in prison joseph makes himself useful he gains the trust of the prison warden and becomes actually the head of kind of all the prisoners who are there in the prison and after a strange turn of, of events involving a few dreams there's a few prisoners who get out that tell pharaoh when he has a dream, hey, there's a guy I remember that might be able to interpret your dreams. So Joseph gets called out, comes to Pharaoh of all people, the head over all of Egypt. And Pharaoh's been having these dreams, and, and Joseph's able to interpret it through the, the word of the Lord that's given to him. 
So Joseph says to him, you, you have this dream, and what it means is that there's going to be seven years of plenty. There will be plenty of crops, and, but then it's going to be followed by seven years of famine. So you need to make sure and save up and do all you can for these hard years that are ahead. And, and, and Pharaoh sees the wisdom in what he says, and so he says, I need somebody to be over uh, this task of, of making sure we save up enough for the hard years that are ahead. And he looks around, and sure enough, he calls on Joseph. Joseph now the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. From slavery to prison to the second most powerful person in the land. The story ends well. But like in our stories, Joseph didn't always know it would end well. And right now, I'm guessing there's a good number that aren't exactly at the peak of that flow chart in your life. You might be wondering kind of where God is in the midst of all that. You might be having a lot of doubts about where God is in the midst of it. I want to tell you about Joseph's life because I think it's really important as we find ourselves at different places that we, we gain a larger picture because sometimes we get zeroed in on a certain segment of our lives and we, we forget the bigger picture of what God's been up to. From age 17 to age 30, Joseph spends his life in slavery or in prison. I want you to think about the the life expectancy of person in that, in that time period. This would have been the prime years of Joseph's life. Thirteen years he's unjustly put into slavery, and then once again he's convicted of a crime that he didn't commit. To so the question in our lives when it comes to this time of waiting, it's not if we will wait. The question is how we will wait. Waiting is going to be a part of life. And I would suggest to you that how Joseph chose to wait made a huge impact on the outcome of Joseph's life. As Christians, it's really natural in those moments to really begin to ask questions about who God is. One of the first questions we begin to ask, I think, when things go difficult, when we're in waiting, is where are you, God? And, and that question often evolves into another question if things aren't answered quickly. Well, is there a God? And I don't know how I would maintain faith in God if, if this had been my situation, if this had been my lot. Years 17 to 30, spent as a victim of injustice, as a victim of his brother's plot. And in those moments, it's, it's easy for us to see ourselves as victims, isn't it? Victims of chance, or victims of abuse, or victims of injustice. It becomes easier to assume that the future won't get any better. That the forces are actually against you. It becomes easier to question if God's actually there at all. And I wonder if, if Joseph's prayers, what they would have sounded like in those seasons where he was waiting on God. Or I wonder if maybe it was just silence sometimes. What's the use in offering prayers if God's not going to answer them or if he doesn't exist at all? Because when we wait, and hear me on this church, when we wait, it is natural to doubt that there's a God at work. But a closer look at Joseph's story reveals that where God is the entire time, especially at the lowest moments of his life, I mean, can you imagine being in slavery, being in prison, and wondering about this whole God situation? But the story of Joseph, over and over again, if you read closely, shows you where God is, even at the, the most difficult moments in his life, especially at the most difficult moments of his life. Read with me, if you would, in, in Genesis 39, verse 1. We're going to go back to the story of being sold into slavery, going to Potiphar's house. Listen closely to Scripture as it relates this story. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered 
and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of the entire household. He entrusted to his care everything he owned. I would imagine if I didn't have scripture that was able to narrate this story, and you were to look at the life of Joseph here at the low, first low point that happens in prison, my first thought would be, ah, God doesn't seem to be doing anything. But scripture writes a different story that says in that low moment, it says the Lord was with Joseph. And he succeeded the house of Potiphar as a result of it. Now I want you to think about this because some of you are stuck in situations right now where you're working for some employers that you just don't respect all that much. You don't think they handle things the right way. It's a difficult situation you face. I wonder how many employers right now are benefiting. Their, their, their business is actually doing well because of the work of people that the Lord is behind who's underneath them. And my guess is there's some of you that are doing the right thing and you're doing over and over again and, and over and over again. It seems like, why is this person succeeding? Why is this happening? Sometimes, like this story, God chooses to somehow bless those who aren't followers of God because those who are followers of God choose to be faithful in those circumstances. The Lord was with Joseph and Potiphar was blessed. It seems backwards. It seems strange. That's the story that's told. But more importantly, God was with Joseph. So then he goes into prison, and the question is, where's God in the midst of this? He may have been there when I was rising up in Potiphar's house, but now I've been thrown into prison unjustly. I didn't do anything wrong. It was the wife that did something wrong. Let's read on in verse 20, 39, 20. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. You hear that refrain again and again, don't you? In those low moments, in the low points, you can see there's scriptures that are right there reminding us in ways that probably Joseph isn't even aware. The Lord was with him even in those difficult circumstances. And perhaps most surprisingly in the story, it's not that Joseph sees this or the writer of Scripture sees this. Even Pharaoh sees that the Lord is with Joseph. Let's read on in chapter 41, verse 37. This is when he's interpreted the dream and what happens right after that. Again, Genesis 41, verse 37. This is, this is shocking to me as I read this. Again, Pharaoh would have followed all kinds of gods, but listen to his response to Joseph. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh... And to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the Spirit of God. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. You see, Pharaoh saw a wisdom behind Joseph that even he didn't have, even the Nile God didn't have, the sun God didn't have, the plethora of gods that the Egyptians worshipped. No, it was the God of Joseph that he saw wisdom in in this situation. So where is God in the midst of slavery? Where is God in the midst of his prison sentence? The text says clearly in those moments, even more clearly than the best moments, the highest moments of Joseph's life, the Lord was with Joseph. 
And right now in your waiting, I'm guessing that's kind of hard to believe. I'm guessing it's really hard to believe for some of you right now. What are you waiting on right now? What is it that you're in between right now that you're struggling with? Whatever it is, I want to suggest to you this morning that Genesis 37 to 50 clarifies for us where God is when it seems like he's most absent. That doesn't mean everything's going to get fixed. It doesn't mean everything's going to go easy. But this refrain from Joseph is a comfort to me in the most difficult times to know that even when I doubt his presence most, he isn't far from any one of us. There's a couple of scriptures I want to I want to hand over to you today that have been blessings to me that maybe if you're in one of those seasons of waiting or if you're not, then plug it away for a future time because you'll come to those moments. Maybe you'll want to put this on your mirror or, or you know, on your dashboard of your car. Someplace you can see it and memorize it. Remind yourself because it's so easy to forget in these settings. One of those passages comes from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. It says there, Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. There's a lot of good reminders in this passage that are important in times of waiting. The first is that the Lord longs to be gracious to you. This is God's disposition toward his people. It is a grace-dispensing God. That's who he is. But there's more good news here. It says that God is a God of justice. And my guess is there's some of you that are in waiting right now, and part of it is because you've been dealt a bad hand. You've, you've experienced some kind of injustice that you wish would be right, or that you wish the truth would come out. And what the scripture reminds us of is that God is on the side of justice. He's on the side of truth. And it may not always get found out in our timetable. But the promise is, look, yours is not to give vengeance, he says in Romans 12, Paul writes. It's God's job to do all that. You can trust him to do that. In the end, he's a God of justice. And again, that may not be a comfort in the season you're right in, but it's one of those things I need to repeat to myself, to remind myself, oh, it's God who justifies. I can't justify myself. There's no one else. It's God who justifies. That's been a statement I've said over and over again, a mantra of sorts in certain seasons of my life. It's God who will justify in the end. And then finally, the final word of that, blessed are those who wait for Him. If you're waiting right now, there's some kind of blessing that's there in the midst of it. Another of these verses that has become significant to me, that I, one of my favorite verses, one that I, I love to wake up in the morning and, and have this as my prayer as I start the day. This is Psalm 5, verse 3. It's a psalm that David writes, a guy who knew waiting in his life. It says there, In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning I lay my requests before you and wait expectantly. Now, I, I, I've, I've followed most of this verse for much of my life. I've laid my requests before God. That last phrase turns it a different way, doesn't it? He's got I'm going to lay these things before you, and then I'm going I'm to wait on tiptoes for what you might do in this day that I might miss otherwise. It makes me wonder, how many times in, in my everyday life do I, I not pray this prayer, I not look expectantly, and I, I miss all the things that God's doing because I lay my request and then I go on with my day. It makes me wonder this last week, what might I have missed because I didn't have my, my eyes open to see what God was doing in the midst of the difficulty. I would encourage you this week, lift this prayer up. 
open your eyes through the day. Maybe this is a prayer you need to repeat through the day. God, I'm waiting expectantly. I'm going to have my eyes open to see whatever it is you might be doing in my life. I want these two passages to be blessings to you. That we might wonder what God might be up to. Because when we live our lives expecting to see God doing something, it's amazing how often he shows up or maybe how often I see what I don't otherwise. You look at Joseph's low moments without the subtle refrain of the Lord was with Joseph. It's easy to think of those moments, well, must be absent. If you're praying that prayer of expectancy, I, I just have a guess that maybe we begin to see things we don't always see otherwise. At the end of the story, you see what God was up to the whole time. He had something in mind. In the larger scheme of things, God is actually saving Israel through Joseph. And it seems like a curse at the first part. Here's this dysfunctional family. They sell their brother off to, to slavery. I mean, what good could come from this? In fact, later on in the story at the end, Joseph's able to say, what you meant for harm, God meant it for good. And that's an amazing place to get to because I'm guessing he didn't have that kind of faith when he was sitting in the pit that day. In the larger scheme of things, God is saving Israel through Joseph. And at the end of the story, there's an incredible turn of events. I, I can't go into all the story, but basically the, the brothers end up showing up in Egypt because they've run out of food. So, so their father sends them. Again, their father thinks that Joseph's dead. They think Joseph's long gone. He'll never show up again. They show up in Egypt, and they stand in front of this guy, and they end up bowing down before him. A reminder of the dream that Joseph had had earlier. And Joseph knows who they are, but they don't know who he is. And in that moment where revenge would be so easy, uh, he takes a little bit of revenge maybe in that story, right? He gives him a little bit of trouble, but in the end, he invites his father back in, the whole family moves to Egypt, and God saves Israel through this hardship that Joseph faces. And he also saves Egypt. We forget that sometimes in the tribes we live in. We forget that God cares for more than just the insiders sometimes. God cared for Egypt through this. He actually used Joseph to provide enough food in this season of difficulty. But the other truth that's in this story we sometimes forget is God saves Joseph in this story. Joseph had just continued in, with his father. I don't, I don't know what would have become of Egypt. I don't know what would have become of the world in that way. God might have found another way. Probably would. But Joseph would have missed out on something. And something happens that transforms Joseph through this story. Because at the beginning, you remember, there's a little bit of, of pride that he, he creates this jealousy in his brothers. You can see a little bit of a haughty spirit inside of him, right? Like telling this story about the dream he'd had. But at the end of the story, 22 years have passed. And those 22 years could have created him to be one of the most bitter people on the face of the earth. He had every right to be. He could have played that card. He could have just allowed that revenge to kind of build up inside of him. And when he stood over his brothers, he had every right to dismiss them, kill them on the spot. He's powerful enough to do it. But something happened in the waiting that he was changed and he was able to forgive his brothers and save them in the end. You know what kind of appetite for revenge 22 years can build up? Some of you do. You know what kind of appetite for bitterness can be built up over a, a period of time like that? Oh, many of us understand that. How are you being formed right now in the whatever waiting that you're experiencing? Because here's what I would tell you this morning. Don't waste your waiting. Don't waste your waiting. God does things in times of waiting that can't be done in other times. I grow most through the 
periods of pain and difficulty in my life than I ever do when he comes through on the timetable I want him to. So right now, you can waste that time. You can become more bitter. You can become more angry. You can become more of a victim in whatever situation you face. And some of you have great reasons to be able to be victims because you have been victimized. But what happens in the story of Joseph is he makes a turn. He sees that God's at work. And somehow he's able to forgive his brothers for something they didn't deserve forgiveness for. He saves his family, and Joseph is saved in the end. And I'm wondering in our lives, all of the difficulty in our country, about all of the challenge, about all of the hatred, the enmity, the, all the things that kind of break us apart, if people would use the waiting to be transformed themselves, to somehow dispense grace on the other side of it, to be able to help others who are walking through the same difficulties, what might be different if we allowed our waiting to be useful and not wasted? Waiting can make you bitter, but it can make you vengeful. It can harden you as a person. But waiting can also change you. It can soften you. It can help you see others who've walked through pain as well. One example of that happened after first service. Standing at the door greeting people, and a woman named Carly came up, Carly Hart. Some of you know Carly's story. She went through an accident. Uh, it's been a while now. She's had a traumatic brain injury and has been walking through the healing of that. You might see her with a walker. It's a young woman who's walking into our church trying to relearn what it means to do life again. Carly met me at the door and she wanted to share a message with me. And she said, you know, I've been in a period of waiting recently as I've been rehabbing. And I want to tell you the passage that stuck out to me and sticks out to me in this season. She said, I hope you'll share it with second service. That's the good thing about a do-over in second. You get a better sermon, right? So come to second service is the key of that, right? Exodus 14, verse 14, listen to this. The Lord will fight for you. You need, be only, you need only be still. This is the Red Sea crossing, verse 13. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Next week, I've got a, another sermon that's going to counter that whole message. Because some of you need to hear another message. But I think Carly's message is what some of you need to hear today. Some of you are in waiting, and instead of being frantic, or instead of building up resentment, don't waste this waiting. Wait on the Lord. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be fixed in your situation. It means in some cases, it will. And I don't know how he sorts it out. To me, sometimes those answered prayers cause more doubt in me than they cause faith because I think about all those who don't get the healing. But I can't help but share Carly's testimony because it's a powerful word, isn't it? Somebody who's waiting, seeing God move, she's testifying to the people who are serving her about the goodness of God in one of the most difficult situations. It's a modern-day Joseph. Someone who's being changed by the waiting in a positive and maybe if there's a message this morning, Carly needs to be the one to speak it. So add Exodus 14, 14 to your list this week as well. Let's, uh, let's close this morning as we, we end in prayer. Father, we don't like waiting. A lot of us this week are going to find ourselves in lines buying gifts for people and we'll kind of lose our Jesus in the midst of it find ourselves in traffic this week. Some of us are going to find ourselves at doctor's offices. 
Some of us are going to find ourselves at jobs that we wish would come to an end with something new in store. Some of us are longing for the pregnancy test to say something different for once. God, we experience all kinds of waiting in our lives. And in the midst of that waiting, God, whether it's joy or whether it's pain on the other side, we want to entrust ourselves to you, believing that even in the lowest moments, that you're with us. I thank you for Carly's testimony this morning to me. It was a reminder that these words are true, that, that we wait and we're still even in prison, even in slavery, and somehow you, you work with that. God, you change us. And so, God, whether we save a whole nation or, or whether you just save us in the process, we pray that you would change our hearts, that you would not allow us to waste the waiting that we're in right now. We love you, God. We thank you so much for Jesus who also waited on earth and was transformed and transformed us through that process. God, we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Be standing now as we close our time. Church, the question is not if you will wait. The question is how you will wait. So you, may you wait on tiptoes, expectant to see what God might just reveal this week before your eyes. May we love God, may we love people, may we serve others. Go in peace today.